Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Polycast 399. We're so close. I am your host, Canis Albinus, and I am here today with uh, Makalua. This coffee cup does not hold enough. Why? And Mega Bears fan. Uh oh, one episode away from the big 400. Oh no. That's okay. They say 400 is the new 300. I think we've made that joke before. Yeah, I think when we said that with the new three, the 300 is the new 200. And I'm sure we'll make it again. Uh huh. 500 is the new 400. Yeah, we'll have a few years for that. 500. Oh my goodness. Yeah, someday, perhaps. But first, Fraxis has to give us a new civilization game, because, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nah, what are you talking about? We got plenty of stuff to talk about. Sit for forever. <laughs> nervously shuffles papers in front of desk. Uh, yeah, that's about that size of that. Well, yeah, because in lieu of, uh, like, any new civilization news or uh, content coming out, I have had to dig deep into the barrel of other stuff, including previously talking about City Skylines uh, issues, and now we actually have a Dark Souls issue that I want to bring up real quick, which is uh, apparently from software, the developer that makes the Dark Souls games had to shut off the online components for all of the Dark Souls games on PC. I think it's all PC, not just Steam. Like, all PC versions. I don't know if it was available anywhere other than Steam. But if you were playing the Dark Souls games on Steam, you can no longer play any of the online functionality. And the reason for this is because there was a security exploit that would allow other multiplayer users to run remote code onto the other players' computers and essentially take complete control of the other player's computer in multiplayer. Thankfully, the person who found this exploit was a good Samaritan, tried to report it to From Software, but after not getting any official response from them, uh, started doing this on streamers, to, uh, to people streaming the game, and just doing fairly benign stuff like running, like opening PowerShell and running text-to-speech things, just to tell them, like, hey, I'm able to do these things while they were streaming to a public audience uh, in order to raise awareness to the problem. But if this had been found by a malicious agent, like, oh my goodness, like, just imagine the things they could have done. And, um... It's not directly related to Civ, but the reason I bring this up is because we have this increasing push from game developers and game publishers to make games more and more always online. And um, for games that are predominantly played as single player or who have a you know strong single player component, making your game always online is risky. And lately, with things like City Skylines, with the mod issue, and now with Dark Souls with this multiplayer exploit, exploit uh, it just exposes the fact that forcing online play into games that don't necessarily need it is not only unnecessary, but also potentially dangerous. 
So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, we have to be careful what mods we download from the Steam Workshop, and now, apparently, we have to be careful what multiplayer games we play, because, uh, yeah, stuff like this can happen. Yeah, it is extremely lucky that that was a white hat type of person and not somebody who really wanted to go after things. I mean, and, oh, yeah. go ahead. No, 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 that, was a, that was a great way to get attention done to the problem, though, doing it to the streamers and doing something relatively harmless, you know, like that. We should also say that this happened back in middle of January. So it's ha- it happened a while ago, but... Yes, it did. But here we are also months later, and From Software has still not brought the multiplayer component for Dark Souls back online, at least not on PC. So there is now legitimate concern within the Dark Souls community that multiplayer on PC is just gone for good. Hopefully that's not the case, uh, but it very well could be. Uh, thankfully, as far as I know, consoles are not affected. I've been playing all my Dark Souls games on consoles, so you know I have been spared from from this sort of thing. Uh, and, and as There's far as I to play an Elden Ring, yeah. And, and as far as I know, there this exploit was a PC only exploit. Uh, Hopefully there is no analog in the console versions of the game. So if you are playing those games on consoles, you're probably hopefully safe. But, I mean, like, who knows, you know? <laughs> These games were out, you know, the first Dark Souls. This pa- this exploit apparently affected all the Dark Souls games. And the first Dark Souls was released in, like, 2010, 2011. So this exploit was sitting around undetected for over a decade. So... Who knows? What else is out there? Yeah, somebody trying to hack it just for score reasons or whatever probably found it. And I'm guessing this means that Elden Ring was built from scratch off of a slightly different engine or something. So that's why they don't have to worry about it in there. Well, from, they just patched it because it was not out yet. Yeah, I, I know From Software had released a public statement at the time that this had happened, saying that they were taking the Dark Souls multiplayer components offline so that they could focus on fixing the problem for Elden Ring, so that it would not be an Elden Ring when mm. that game launched. Uh, but uh, you know, I, again, who knows? Ho- hopefully, they fixed it in Elden Ring, but. And there could also be other vulnerabilities, too, and not just with these games from this particular developer, but, you know, any game for any developer. I mean, we have so many publishers now that are forcing in always online components and loot boxes and stuff like that. Like, I've been playing Gran Turismo 7 recently on the PS5, and that has an always online component. And, in fact, they had an issue a few weeks ago where they did server maintenance, and they broke the server, and the server was just offline for a whole day, and nobody could play the game. Be- not even in single player, uh, because the game has an always online uh, requirement. So, yeah, like like I said, shoehorning this stuff in where it isn't necessary is apparently showing that it's more dangerous than we might have thought. And just making it worse for the player experience, because if I'm just going to play single player stuff and I'm not going to play multiplayer, why should I be blocked from playing the game for a whole day? Just because you have a problem in multiplayer. That, that's stupid. There should be an option... Like, Steam has offline mode. These games need to have an offline mode. Well, it's funny because, again, talking about Dark Souls, like, Dark Souls is a game that was built around the idea of having, like, asynchronous multiplayer. Like, it's a really big part of the game's, like, core design. Mm -hmm. But that game, in its main menu, has the option to play offline. (laughs) So if they can figure that out and do that, Gran Turismo, guys, what? Yeah, but this predominantly single-player, you know, racing game on a console, like, doesn't just have the option to not play online. So, yeah, that's... 
that sort of stuff is frustrating already. But when you add on the fact that this online component could potentially introduce, you know, loopholes and hacking uh, threats, like it just makes it seem all the more unnecessary. And uh, hopefully Dark Souls is a big enough IP that like other companies take note of this and are maybe like, whoa, we should probably be a little bit more careful about putting stuff like this in our games in the future so that hopefully this doesn't happen to other games or, you know, other developers and uh, get caught by people who, you know, aren't good Samaritans like the the Dark Souls uh, hacker who found this uh, proved to be. But anyway, I guess we can talk about Civ now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, digging back into things, it, uh, article off of Gatecrashers is Civilization 4, the games that made us. So one of their colonists there has gone back to his childhood to explore his love for Civ 4, which we can all understand because, oh, I, I don't think I had Civ, I don't think Civ 4 was on Steam, but I probably, if you added up my hours between Civ 5 and Civ 6, that's probably how many hours I put into Civ 4. And a lot of it was multiplayer too, interestingly enough. So, but I, I understand that because he also came from, he liked historical uh, novels and movies and TV shows. So he saw Sims like, ooh, history. But history I get to make, you know. So a lot of us started and everybody gets hit with one more turn, you know. I mean, yeah. I think we've just, so we, there was, it just kept getting, it was interesting. It was good from the start and it just kept getting better with each expansion. You know, and there's a lot of people that even after, even though Civ 5 was really good once it got its third expansion, it started out a little rough. So there was people that kept on with Civ 4 until mid or late into Civ 5. And like, we have so many, I think we still have a lot of people who stuck with Civ 5 even compared to Civ 6. I don't get the the dislike for Civ 6, but it's pretty pronounced. I think a lot of it had to do with knee-jerk reactions to like early issues that people had with the, even before pre-release a big one was you know people complaining that the art style looked too cartoony and like a mobile game and i think that kind of set a tone for people's reaction to the game uh when it finally did eventually launch um and then the other big thing i think was just a lot of people felt like it was just too similar to civ 5 like oh why stop playing civ 5 which has you know more content and a little more polish and you know two expansions and all that stuff uh, you know, I'll just wait until I, I knew a lot of people who were basically saying, I'll wait until Civ 6 gets expansions. But then even when the expansions came, they just still never got around to playing it. Yeah, I do remember. I, now, now I just mentioned, I do remember the arguments about, oh, it looks too cartoony. It's a game. It doesn't have to look perfectly realistic. Right. right. Everybody's individual taste in art and design. And, and again, as I've said so many times on the show, is the reason for that particular art style was to make the main screen of the game more readable than it was in Civ 5, so that you don't have to go through a bunch of different menus and, and widgets and stuff to see what's going on in your cities. Although, you know, you still do have to do a lot of that stuff anyway. Uh, but the point was to communicate as much information on the main screen as possible. And I think Civ Six, with its art style, is exceedingly successful at doing that. And especially like since once they picked up the banners, I think that were originally something like a mod had very something very similar. He's like, oh yeah, we put those there, and now I can see what all the AI is making and everybody, you know, their culture per turn, their science per turn, and I know if I'm doing well or if oh god, I'm so far behind without having to dig through ten menus. Yeah. Yeah, going back to Civ 5 after playing Civ 6, for me, has been 
tough because of stuff like that, like not being able to see stuff that's under construction, not being able to see all the infrastructure that's in my cities, uh, not being able to see all the infrastructure that's in opponent cities. Uh, you know, Civ Six made all that stuff easily readable and digestible, relatively speaking, anyway. It could be better. Yeah, but I think I think as somebody who wanted to have a throwback weekend, I think I could get back into Civ Four easily, partly because of the number of hours I played, but while its interface is probably more cumbersome in that, you know, trying to find everything. Where's this go? Where'd that go? I'm so used to my little banner. But, you know, but there's a reason that Civ Four lasted for so long and had people putting so, so many hours for it. And it was also more easily moddable. And so there was a ton of things. You, you, there was complete conversions, like where it converted into a fantasy game. And there was like Rise and Fall. And, you know, even if you didn't play just plain normal Civ, you could still put hours of Civ time into things. Oh, yeah, for sure. I had to go back and replay uh, some of Civ 4 and Civ 4 Colonization recently to capture footage for those, you know, top 10 good and bad idea uh, videos that we talked about in previous episodes. And, uh, yeah, I, I got totally sucked in. Like, I had to, like, make myself stop after I got the footage that I needed <laughs> so that I could actually have time to put the darn video projects together <laughs> and not just end up spending the whole week playing Civ 4 and then falling behind on what I was supposed to actually be doing. Because, uh, yeah, it's it still is that good of a game. Holds up very well. Yeah, because he's also down in here talking about we had all the... I mean, we all love Sean Bean in Civ 6, but the first time we had the quotes uh, read out was by Leonard Nimoy and so forth. And a lot of us still have those like in our head. Like you can hear them. You don't even have to see them. Just you can just see the text and it will play in your head. Yeah. I, yeah. It was, it was just like the awesomest choice. And, and I've been a huge lifelong Trekkie. So, you know, yeah. Le Leonard Nimoy has more, uh, <laughs> authority for three. me than yeah. than Sean Bean. Like the about the only thing, only, the only narrator that they could probably get that could top Leonard Nimoy would be if maybe they got Patrick Stewart to uh, <laughs> to do all the narration for a game. That would be difficult. Oh yeah, I, I doubt Fraxis could afford that. Maybe the the actress who played Janeway. Oh, Kate Mulgrew. Yeah, yeah, I could see something like that too. That'd be a nice change of pace. I mean, it's Kate nice Mulgrew is still voice. Yeah, but I mean, you know, Kate Mulgrew is still no Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> <laughs> well, nobody except Leonard Nimoy is Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> That's true. I just say he had well, unique unto himself. But he, he, he does point out that when you came into these things, and like the first time you're playing through a civilization, you got start building great wonders of the world. Like you build the pyramids, you build the Colosseum. You later on build things like the Statue of Liberty and stuff, and it's just this amazing feeling, and you get addicted to it or, or not addicted so much but you get hooked on it and you just keep playing and you keep coming back for each new iteration of Civ I mean you know I, I was we were talking about with Civ 5 to Civ 6 it's not necessarily everybody's taste but Civ 4 is probably the most universally loved of all the Civs and a big part of that too like kind of comparing Civ 4 to Civ 6 a little bit is Civ 4 also had that very immersive quality uh the, you didn't build districts outside the city like you do in Civ 6, but still, in Civ 4, every piece of infrastructure that you built was depicted on the map mm -hmm. as a 3D asset. Like, you built a barracks in your city, there was a 3D graphic of a barracks in your you city. Built, you, yeah, built a, you built 
you built a monument. There it was right in the middle of your city. Yeah, exactly. And then on top of that, you know, all the improvements you made, like the game had nice little different, you know, assets or animations depending on whether that was being worked or not. Like if, if you had a little gold mm-hmm. mine, right, and you weren't working it, it was just sitting there, just a gold mine not doing anything. But if you assigned a citizen to work that tile, there'd be little mine carts going in and out of it, like little torches illuminating it so that you could see like right there on the main screen without even having to go into your your city management screen you could see that mine is being worked i am getting the production from that mine and i don't have to go to some other menu to see that it just makes the world of civ 4 uh, and by extension the world of civ 6 feel more alive and more immersive and more like you know the things i'm doing the world is reacting and responding to and that you know, just really helps make a game more engaging. And a Civ Five, unfortunately, as good as it was, lost a lot of that. Like, I think the only building that appeared on the map was the Colise- uh, the yeah Colosseum buildings. Wonders had little graphics for them in the, in the cities, so you would always see wonders. But the only like regular building that I think showed up was uh, the Colosseum and walls. Everything else you'd have to go into your city screen to see. And even then, you know, unlike previous Civ games like Civ 2 and Civ 3, there was no, like, screen that showed a pretty picture of your whole city in Civ 5. It was just a bunch of icons on the side of the screen to tell you what was in there. Yeah, so we got some of it back out of Civ 6. Maybe they'll take the hint. Civ Civ 7 will also continue in that vein and still have everything where you can see it on the map so you know exactly where things are built. You know, it, it is much nicer to have the wonders popped out so you can see where they are instead of going, what city, where? And I, I do feel like... In defense of Civ Five, um, the fact that the Colosseum building was an asset that was a you know 3D model that would show up in the cities on the main map tells me one of two things: either a it was originally planned to be a wonder, so they created that graphic as a wonder graphic, mm. and then just said, ah, let's make it a regular building, and they just reused the asset because they had it. Alternatively, it could be a clue that they were planning on making 3D models for all the buildings and rendering them in the cities just like Civ 4 did, and they just didn't have the time or the budget to do that, and the Colosseum ended up being the only one that they actually finished and made work. So, you know, I, I always got the feeling that, that Civ 5 was pushed out the door a lot sooner than it should have been, and it was not anywhere close to being the the vision that um, uh, Soren, it was Soren Johnson, right? Civ Five. Yeah, that was John no, it was John Schaefer. Schaefer. Yeah, it, I, I I don't think that when that Civ Five was anywhere close to the vision that John Schaefer had for it uh, when he was designing it and they were working on the game. I, I really do think that Two K um, forced that game out the door long before it was ready. Well, the problem is John Schaefer didn't have a very good vision for Civ V, and it took a lot of work to get it fixed up. Yeah, but even then, I don't think the released game was even close to what that vision was supposed to be. Oh, no, it was was an alpha. Yeah, and that's a shame. Yeah, it's part of why it was rough in the beginning, but then great later. Like, once you polished it up and got all the edges that were supposed to be on there on the actual release thing, then it was great. But this is... This is a modern, modern, more modern problem. They keep not just for Axis, but other companies. They're, even if the company themselves cares a lot about the game, their parent publishing company will for, tell them to put it out for a certain date. And then so they have, they have to make that really tough decision between I need to get this amount of a complete, this much of a complete game out the door, but I'm going to have to cut some things. I might have to cut some things that really matter. 
Yeah, and, and for some developers, it's kind of a lose-lose situation, because on the one hand, you can have the publisher backing, but then you have the publisher demands, including, mm-hmm. you know, strict release dates, but then you, you try to do it indie on your own, and you, you just might not have the money or resources to complete that vision uh, anyway. So, you know, in a lot of cases, it, it can really feel like a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't kind of situation. Very few game studios have the, the you know, money and the clout to make their own game and self-publish it and and fulfill their creative visions without significant compromises. And I call this a modern problem. No, I think this has been going on at least since the 90s, but it was less obvious back then. We didn't have as much information about what was going on within the companies. You just saw it in the end product and you're like, why would they put this out? And this is before it was easy, easy, so easy to patch things in, you know, with like a day one patch and stuff. Well, and because or you couldn't just... Of- yeah, because you couldn't just patch the game. Like, you had to release a, a stable, quality product. Otherwise, it just wouldn't sell. You didn't have an opportunity yeah. to fix that. The days before Steam. Well, well just I don't think the days before ubiquitous broadband internet. Also, I'm glad I, Steam didn't exist for the 90s, because I don't need to know how many hours I put into some games in the 90s. Yeah, that that would be... I want to know how much I played SimCity 2000. <laughs> Oh yeah, SimCity three thousand. I I was a little bit. I uh, I played SimCity two thousand on the PlayStation, so I didn't play much of it because it was not nearly as good an experience on a console as it was on a PC. But I played a crap ton of SimCity three thousand and uh, a uber crap ton of SimCity four. And also, I will admit, I was a really big uh, player of The Sims, the The Sims and The Sims two. Mm-hmm. Like oh, I I put so many hours into those games too. Well, The Sims and The Sims 2 were the ones that hadn't yet achieved full milking status. Yeah, those were those were the good ones, for sure. Yeah. That was 3 where it really started getting outrageous, but 3 still three still was some fun. Here, buy this $40 DLC so you can have teenagers. Which is, by the way, the exact same DLC that you had already bought for the previous game, and which we took out of the new game and are selling to you again for double the price. Yes, because blah. Oh, and it's only gotten worse since then with Sims 4. Well, The Sims 4 also The Sims 4 also had some very bad bugs in it. On top of cash cow syndrome. I was thinking like illegal bugs. Oh. I remember a very specific bug that got a lot of publicity at the time that involves children and the woohoo. Oh, yeah. That was the Hello coding fail there. Uh oops. Someone forgot to check. But yeah, let's move on to the next topic unless anybody else has anything more to say about Civ 4. Actually, the the next topic kind of fits into this existing topic because Your previous Civs. <laughs> yeah, it is a uh, article from Kotaku which I know save us all, but they list the best strategy games on PC, and they chose Civ Five over Civ Six, and oh. I, I kind of have to agree with them. I, I kind of feel like you, yeah. I kind of feel like you can't go wrong between four, five, and six. Like whichever one you pick, I can't really argue with you. They all have good points. My uh, reasoning for picking Civ Five has to do with the end game, specifically what happens when you reach the industrial era and beyond because the other games don't really address it very well at all um civ 4 has favorite civics which you know 
it's nice and all, but it doesn't really mean anything for the end game unless you have a Civ that loves police state. And then in Civ Six, you've got oh, you have a different government, and it's a minor diplomatic debuff. Whereas in Civ Five, you were forced to pick one of the three ideologies, and it really mattered who which side you went on because all of your allies would be based on that, and it really made the game, in my opinion, more dynamic in the sense that old old issues sort of faded away more commonly than you have in the current game. Yeah, they suddenly didn't care as much what religion you were or, uh, you know, the trade routes you had in the past. It was, oh, you're fascists and we're Democrats. Uh, yeah, no, this ain't going to work out, buddy. Yeah, this is one of the times where Civ actually kind of reflected real world things. Religion and other things are less important. And now it's ideology that's more important, you know, in how we interact with other countries. Well, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, you know, the religions were kind of the ideologies of the earlier phases of the game, and then it just moved away from being religion, religious ideology, to being political ideology. Yeah, I, I, I like that it's also a reflection of the real world, though, because we get it because it always comes up. Oh, that's not real world. Well, this is real world right here. I think if they could take the um, climate change mechanics and disaster mechanics from Civ Six and refine them a bit and put them in Civ Five, you would have the ultimate Civ game. Yeah, I don't know about ultimate, but uh, yeah, I, I, Civ Five I think definitely did have the better end game compared to uh, Civ Six and maybe also even Civ Four. And it's not just the ideologies, but it was also things like you know going for like the culture victory. You had all the museum themings and stuff like that. Like there was a lot more things for the player to actually do, a lot more decisions for the player to make later in the game that past games didn't have and which Civ Six, I think, did not adequately port over. I still don't understand how culture victory works in Civ Six. <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah. <laughs> it's like, confusing. Like, I don't think they explain anywhere how it works. I don't think even in the Civilopedia it explains how it works. Whereas in Civ uh, Five, uh, culture victory... It's not exactly the easiest thing to figure out, but it had a whole screen dedicated to it that told you what was going on. Whereas in Civ Six, it's a tab in the score panel, and it and doesn't have, explain anything. Yeah, it's like it's, it really sticks out because the space race is broken down into achievable goals for you. Why do I not have a culture screen that's similar? Yep. I like the aesthetic of the Civ Six UI, but I think the Civ Five UI is more timeless. Mm. Yeah, it's got that sort of classic, classical thing going for it. Yeah, that Art Deco style. Yeah. It makes it feel like, like, I, I remember reading the, when, before Civ Six was even announced, Kotaku did a re-review of Civ Six in 2016, and they basically came to the conclusion that all the, the ribbing that Civ Five got for having its sort of, you know, old-fashioned interface in terms of design was a really smart move because all the games that went with modern UIs all look out of date now, but Civ 6 still looks the same and great. But yeah, the other games they listed on this list are Crusader Kings 3, which I don't know if that's really new enough to or old enough to be considered the greatest strategy game. 
Well, and that's and it's interesting because they did go back to the older Civ game, but they did choose the newest Crusader Kings game. Even though I'm sure there would be a lot of people, and I don't, I don't want to speak for him, but Phil might also say, uh, "No, two is better." He hasn't played uh, Crusader Kings three, so I don't know if he would say that. But I have. I I, I like it. It's good. I've played Crusader Kings two and Crusader Kings three, and I think Crusader Kings three is better. It just doesn't have the content yet. It's certainly a gentler learning curve, and the tutorial for Crusader Kings 3 is, like, way, like, miles better than the tutorial for Crusader Kings 2. And I think one of the problems with Crusader Kings 2 was that they added so much content post-release and didn't go back and update the tutorial for any of that new content or mechanics. So the tutorial is even worse and sometimes even more confusing because it's tutorializing mechanics that aren't really used anymore or that are, like, overwhelmed by the importance of other mechanics that it doesn't teach. And, um, like, if if you... my recommendation is if you ever tried playing Crusader Kings 2 and were completely overwhelmed by it, and because of that experience you are afraid to try Crusader Kings 3, give it a shot. The tutorial is orders of magnitude better uh, at teaching the game and at easing you into it, and it's a much simpler, more intuitive experience, in my opinion. Now, that might change once there's 100 DLCs for it, uh, but we're not at that day yet, so... If you're listening to this five years from now, maybe maybe that's not the case anymore. Yeah, I measured the difference between how much fun the streamers I've watched play it seem to be have be having with it, and they just there's so many more fun things they get to do with Crusader Kings Three. So it's like, yeah, I guess it's better than that because these people are having way too much fun. We also have Endless Legend, which I don't know as far as endless games go. I think Endless Space Two is better, but. Um... Company of Heroes, which I know nothing about. I played that back in the day. It was pretty good. Yeah, I was going to say on Endless Legend, if you're in the mood to do a fantasy type thing, that's it, it has Master of Magic vibes and stuff to it. So, oh yeah, there was a, a news article that Master of Magic is like starting an open beta. Oh, finally, or something like that. It, there, there was some news about it recently, but I did not put it on the list. And then we've got um, Total War Shogun Two, which I which absolutely a- loved. <laughs> Which is an interesting choice, considering that um, technically the newer Warhammer f- games are a lot more um, interesting to play. But then again, Shogun probably looks better. Yeah, I've heard a lot of very good things about the Total War Warhammer games, but I never played them because I'm just not into Warhammer. So it's just the theming is just not my thing. But as far as the historic Total War games go, like I. Shogun 2, I think, is is definitely... Unless you want to go, like, classic and pick, like... You know, I think the first Rome was, like, really good as well. People really loved that, but... People still play that one, yeah. Yeah, Sh- Shogun 2 was absolutely, for sure, my favorite of the Total War games. And uh, not only was Sh- uh, Shogun 2 good, but um, its expansions were also really good. The second expansion, Fall of the Samurai, uh, was absolutely fantastic as well. And then next on the list is Homeworld, which is a pretty good game. I I haven't played it, but I know its history and what it plays like. It's it's basically you know you know how most three uh, D space or th- most two D space or most space based RPG or RTSs with ships are two D. Well, this one is actually three D, and it's the only game that really does it in a way that works. And then there's Pan uh, Panzer Corps, which is 
kind of a remake of Panzer General, which Civ V's combat system was based on. But I don't know if it really merits being on this list. World in Conflict, I played that game a lot when it first came out. That was a really good one. It's uh, World War Three, where the Soviet Union invades Washington State, and uh, they're going. Basically, it's a it's a very interesting game because it's it's got narration and the campaign is really good and the fighting is really good. XCOM Two, we all know. <laughs> Age of Empires Two, yeah, ninety five percent chance to hit. Boom, miss. Hearts of Iron 4, which, why is that on this list? It's a terrible game. <laughs> yes, if we are to believe Phil. <laughs> no, I have seen it. it. It is literally a broken game. It does yeah. not function. I could not, I tried booting it up a few times. I could not make heads or tails of it. Well, it's more It's more of a logistics sim than a real yeah. strategic game. But it also has a lot of, like, the peace mechanics still don't work. Um, you can fight a lot in a war, take most of the land against the Soviet Union and still get nothing in the peace deal because you didn't lose enough troops to the enemy. It's so stupid. Yeah, one of the things that Kotaku actually says about Hearts of Iron 4 is, quote, it's an intentional logistical nightmare, unquote. And uh, I don't know if that's necessarily something that you should be celebrating the game about <laughs> if, a, if a big part of that nightmare is just the fact that so much of those logistics don't work. It's not a logistical nightmare. The logistics are about the only part that do work. Oh, it's just all the stuff built around it that's broken? Um, you you have nations capitulating to the wrong nation. You have territory randomly being given to other countries, despite be, it being held by other countries or by third parties. You have uh, peace mechanics or peace conferences where even if there's like 50 people on one side and 30 people on the other, and there's multiple nations that put in a lot of effort the top two on the winning side get everything and the others get practically nothing because of the way that the um war score system works um you have issues with the navy issues with uh, army units not doing what they're supposed to do when you click on them you have inconsistent input buffering it's just a nightmare and the logistics actually do, do work you actually can build stuff and it does go to your units on the front line easier than it probably would you would imagine but but i i think uh this list is a little bit weird because here are the games that didn't make it onto the list starcraft 2 what command mm. and conquer red alert alpha centauri warcraft oh. 3 europa universalis 4 desperados 3 sid meyer's colonization Endless Space 2, and Unity of Command 2, and the Banner Saga. Now, StarCraft 2 not being in there is a big what? Yeah, I, I don't know how you can omit StarCraft. Too. Yeah, I mean, that's like so foundational to strategy, modern, PC strategy yeah, gaming in general. Yeah, modern and stuff, it is. Yeah, it, in I, Warcraft 3. I mean, it was the competitive professional mm -hmm. eSport for like forever, it's arguably the last one of its class, too, because most games, there aren't a lot of RTSs like that being made anymore. Yeah, and I mean, you can make a case for either of the, the StarCraft games as well, because, I mean, both of them were, you know, monumental milestones in uh, in PC strategy gaming. Mm -hmm. you know, if you also, wanna... if, if you have to have a Paradox title, 
EU4 is better than Hearts of Iron yeah. 4. Well, they also have Crusader Kings 3 in there, so... Well, yeah, but... Yeah, but... Crusader Kings 3 and EU4 are both good enough to fit on this list, in my opinion. Yeah, I would like to throw out a small... Uh, uh, an acknowledgement to a small indie strategy game, which uh, I had played uh, a few years ago and thought was really, really good, uh, which was Ultimate General Gettysburg. Uh, it was a uh, obviously a yeah. ci- civil war game about, you know... Sp- just about the Battle of Gettysburg, not the whole war. It was just the Battle of Gettysburg. That game was really neat and had really good AI and had a lot of like back and forth mechanics. You know, there was a real ebb and flow to the battle. The map was just absolutely gorgeous. Like every location, you know, was like labeled and in these these really attractive, uh, vibrant um, visuals and, and graphics. Um, as far as like low budget indie strategy games go, that one is is definitely one of my f- absolute favorites. I believe that one is made by a single guy. Yes, and and that that too. It like I think one person made that game, and uh, I think I think it might have been two people. I think there was a, a coder and an artist. So I think it was two people. Um, Probably. But like, yeah, if, if we're talking about you know best <laughs> PC strategy games ever, that I think is one of the best indie strategy games that I have ever played and is as indie and low budget as it gets, but was absolutely incredible. I mean, if we have to kick some of these off the list, I think the best option would be um, Panzer Corps and XCOM 2. And as much as I hate to say it, World in Conflict, because World in Conflict was good, but it was also not revolutionary. It was just kind of the epitome of a um, of what of its type which kind of died out but starcraft 3 and war or starcraft 2 and warcraft 3 have to be on the list yeah and then there's you know also the question of whether or not you would consider a city builder to be a strategy game because that's kind of a, a fuzzy classification and if you want to go with that then like you know where the heck is uh sim city 2000 or sim city 4 i would argue that a city builder is not a strategy game in the sense that um you would class it with other games like 4Xs and RTSs, because um, there is strategy elements in a city builder, but you're not you're not like fighting an enemy on the ground. Yeah, there's no victory condition, no real conflict. It's it's a more they're they're definitely more of a sandboxy kind of game. But you know they they can get very strategic and very deliberate and very thoughtful. So that, that's why I said it's kind of in a fuzzy gray area where maybe it, it's probably more on the side of no, but. Uh, depending on the specific city builder as well, it, it could definitely go. Uh, like, there's also games like Banished, where you know, which is a city builder game, but it's one of those ones where it has the seasonal cycle where you have to stockpile food and supplies to go through like the long winters, and um, like you can lose w- that game. Yeah, I would argue that that's not even a city builder; that that's a colony simulator. But yeah, so then we're in another the, fuzzy area of yeah, classification. The difference between a city builder and a colony colony simulator is a much more fuzzy gap but i think in order for it to be a strategy game i think it needs to have a tactical element to it like there has to be unit or unit usage or something like that yeah and i would not disagree i just brought it up while while we're talking about the topic of things that might be missing i'm like yeah it's kind of in a fuzzy gray area also where's master of magic 2 or not master of magic 2 master of orion yeah, space is except for XCOM, space has kind of got ignored in this. Yeah, well, homeworld as well, but still. And like you said, they they also left off uh, what was it, endless space too. 
I think if you have to pick between Endless Space and Homeworld, you would pick Homeworld because it's um, it's, it's more it's, unique in its yeah. genre. For sure. But if you had to pick between Hearts of Iron 4 and Endless Space 2... <laughs> Endless Space 2. Duh. Endless Space 2, because Hearts of Iron 4 is the biggest stinker on the list. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if Age of Empires 2 is the best Age of Empires, because I've never played any of those. I think that's the, the general fan consensus. Yeah, and it's still being played competitively, even if it's not like super big in the way that StarCraft gets played, but it's still going on. So people are still playing. People just still play it because. I think what kind of makes this hard is all of these games really don't fit neatly into their, they, like they're not comparing apples to oranges. They're all strategy games, but a lot of them are all, they all have different like scopes. So it's hard to compare them to each other. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very difficult to compare something like Company of Heroes to Civilization. It's like trying to compare Pokemon to Civilization. Yeah, indeed. Because Pokemon is also a strategic game that has tactical stuff in it, but it's definitely not in the same class. Well, I mean, every game should have some element of strategy to it. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, if you want to be really, really generous, you could technically say every game pretty much is a strategy game to some degree. That's like, uh, it was a discussion I had with my younger cousin years ago about what games cla- technically classified as an RPG, because you're kind of playing a role in every game. Well, and so many games now have, you know, character advancement systems and skill systems, and like every game has it now, so... That line is really blurred, but yeah, like talking about like strategy games, like sports games, right? Are sports games strategy games because they're games that, for in large part, model the strategy of playing a sport. And I was going to go with StarCraft Two, partly an RPG because you're following along a storyline with certain characters you play as, in a sense. But do characters level up in StarCraft? Yes. Well, then it probably does have RTS <laughs> elements or RPG elements. Yeah, which is it? Is it is an RPG that it's, you got your RPG in my RTS or is it the other way around? I'm not sure. Yeah. And then there's like Final Fantasy Tactics. Is that an RPG or a strategy game? Uh, I would call that a tactics game, but I would also say it probably is an RPG as well. Yeah. But I mean, tactics and strategy, that's another thing where you're talking about kind of there being a fuzzy, very fuzzy gray area between the two. I don't know if I would call it a strategy game, actually. But then, you know, XCOM 2 would be? XCOM 2 has the the world map element to it. Yeah. Well, I think Final Fantasy Tactics has a uh, like an overworld campaign. It's been a long time since I've played Final Fantasy Tactics, so I, I don't remember much of it. But I'm pretty sure it also had an overworld campaign as well. I don't know how much strategy or thought went into it. but I think it was pretty much um, just My... giving items to characters and choosing which path to take to a to the next battlefield yeah it might have been a very just linear you know series of of tactical battles for you to do uh which is which definitely is on a completely different scale than xcom 2 but like i said both of those are tactics games the bulk of xcom 2 is the the tactical battling so you know again kind of fuzzy do you have any uh comments from the chat uh yes we have one comment from green hatter that just says jesus Oh, well, that's not helpful, is it? No, it is not. Nope. <laughs> if we knew what the timestamp was, I would have been like, hey, well, now we know what Yeah, I'm not even sure what that was in response to.
why don't we move on to our actual um, Civ Six related topic? Yes, but keeping on the topic of strategy and decision-making, uh, we have a thread on Civ Fanatics uh, started by Layrun called Strategic Resources and Potential Additions for Civ 7. Uh, this uh, post is basically, you know, listing some grievances and ideas for how strategic resources could and, you know, maybe should work, according to this uh, poster. Um one thing is basically just asking for there to be more strategic resources, uh, which is something that I you know, can't really argue with. Uh, one of the things that this person brings up is having copper actually be a strategic resource. And uh, I'm kind of like, uh, yeah, you know, it was called the Bronze Age for a reason. Yeah, um, I always wonder about that. Why is this a bonus resource and not even a luxury or something? Because a lot of things are ornamentated with copper. Yeah, like, I, in fact, I'm actually kind of, like, I've been mulling around the idea, like, for a while now, that instead of having ancient, classical, medieval, uh, you know, renaissance, etc., that perhaps civilization's era should be broken down by Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age, and then, you know, maybe Renaissance and Industrial, if uh, that might actually be a more appropriate way of uh, of delimiting between the different eras, because you have that, that shift in which resources are being used and which ones become dominant, not only militarily, but also culturally. I'm going to say this and uh, probably get um, yelled at a lot, but I don't think iron should be a strategic resource because iron is very prevalent all over the world compared to copper. It wasn't so much, I think, with iron, the availability of it, but the technology to properly cast it and you know smelting and casting and all of that that was the thing yes they knew what iron was but they they had to develop the technology to properly make iron weapons yeah that's why they used bronze before they used iron bronze and iron are pretty comparable uh when it comes to strength and usability except if you're in a situation that uses gunpowder but uh, the reason bronze was used was because it's, it was easier to make bronze than it was to forge iron. Because you need to get, you need to, iron requires specific, has specific requirements before it can be used well in a battle sense. Yeah, something that would be mili- a good grade for military weapons is different from just everyday cast iron or something like that. But you still kind of need a decent amount, especially if you're going to go into a military operation, you can't just have one small deposit of iron. I don't know. I mean, this well, is one of those things where it's historical real- realism and gameplay are separated. You know, they're doing that because they want that to be a decision. Yeah. But to Canis's point, I mean, we've also had some Civ games that have things like saltpeter or sulfur as a strategic <laughs> resource that's required for building gunpowder units and then other games where they're like oh no this stuff is common enough you just get the gunpowder units without any strategic resource requirement so it sounds like what Canis is saying is like well if they can do that for gunpowder units why can't they just do that with you know medieval knights and you know pikes oh, as well I think, I think knights should require horses but I think they should require both but yeah yeah, yeah that, that, that every time it's like I'm just building a. I magically made a horse out of iron, apparently. Because in previous civs, I do believe it was that way. 
Yeah, I, I think it would be a lot more interesting, especially in, in Civ Six, where you not only need to have the resource, but you have to have specific quantities of the resource. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think, I, I honestly, I'm baffled that a knight in Civ Six does not require five horses and five iron, as opposed to just ten iron, you know? And, yeah, and similarly, moving forward, like a battleship, like why does a battleship just need oil? How about a battleship requiring ten oil and ten iron, you know? I don't really like the quantified resources thing, but I recognize that it's a good mechanic. Right, but if you're going to do it, like, and you, you gotta have do it right, and you have units that are mixed, you know, function like a knight. Right, it's not only that a knight is just a powerful infantry unit that requires iron, but it also has the extra speed of being a mounted unit. So it's a it's a dual role unit, but it only requires the resource from one of those unit lines, and like. Like stuff like that, like I said, is what really just baffles me that they didn't create this system to be a little more robust. Um, uh, personally, I think a big thing that I would like to see change with strategic resources is I would like to see there be more domestic and economic uses for strategic resources as opposed to them just all getting funneled into the um, military. And horses is a really good example because I could easily see a system where you have the choice between either allocating your horses towards creating mounted military units or you could, say, put them in your coliseums and have horse races for entertainment or you know they could become a luxury item that's sold around your empire to you know wealthy elites the equestrian class as they were called and then you know other resources could be similar like you know again oil very similar thing you could use that in your cities for things like public transportation or you know send it to a racetrack and have car races as opposed to just putting (laughs) it in like that one yeah, as opposed to just putting it in tanks. Oh yeah, you get you get the oil resource and all your coliseums upgrade to uh, racetracks. Yes, I like this plan. Or optionally, like depending on what resources you put into it, maybe you put horses. E- even in the modern That's age, true. you put your horses, and it's a uh, it's a derby track, or you put oil, and it's a Grand Prix track. Yes. Mm-hmm. Think think the. The what is it? The the Indianapolis Motor Speedway should be a, a great wonder. Ooh. I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to it. <laughs> I mean, it is the biggest sporting facility in the world, isn't it? Uh, I don't know. Maybe Mackie can probably answer that more than I can. <laughs> well, I don't know about sporting facility, but I think that whole complex because it's basically two tracks in one, and there's an, the oval is so huge that there's all sorts of stuff in the infield and. <sighs> Racing complex for sure. I don't know about sporting complex. There could be something in another country that's bigger than that. Well, and it certainly wouldn't be unprecedented. I mean, Civ Six has a soccer stadium as a late game wonder. The Estadio, oh uh-huh, gosh, exactly. what's it called? <laughs> I forget what it's I, called. I know what you mean, but I believe it's from uh, Brazil. Yeah, I think it's yeah, a Brazilian so- soccer stadium. I think they built it for the Olympics, so it was like a really big, really fancy one yeah. uh, for the time it was built, which is why it shows up in the game as a wonder. But yeah, by the same logic, yeah, the Indy, Indy 500 could be one. And it's been being held since automobiles were still pretty new, so, you know, invent so, automobiles. <laughs> so according to the list of sports venues by capacity on Wikipedia, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is the largest... Um, the largest Sports venue by capacity with a capacity of one hundred or two hundred fifty-seven thousand three hundred and twenty-five people. Damn! And I thought football stadiums in Texas were big. 
Oh, they are. There are. Oh, oh, there, yes. <laughs> there are very few stadiums in the world that are bigger than some of those college football stadiums. Well, t- also for for Mackey's for, for Mackey's uh, enjoyment, the Circuit de uh, de la Sarthe is the second largest with two hundred thirty four thousand eight hundred. To be fair, though, a lot of that is because, you know, when you're talking about, like, an auto race track, I mean, those things are, like, miles, you know, several miles of circuit. So it's a lot of, also, area in which to put all those people. Uh, A football field is not miles long, so. Yeah. I'm surprised one of the cricket ovals or something wasn't bigger, or at least on that level of big, because those are huge, too. Oh, yeah. In in India and in the UK, yeah, cricket is Uh just, like, ginormous. The largest uh, cricket stadium is... The Narendra Modi Stadium in Ahmedabad, Ahmedabad, India. It is the largest stadium in the world with a capacity of 132,000 people. And it is, I want to say, like 15th or 16th on this list of places. Pretty close. It might even be the 20th. It's it's pretty far down on the list behind a lot of other motor racing and horse racing facilities. Yeah, because the track is so long and they can you can fit more and more grandstands around them and stuff. Not to mention the uh, general admission areas, which are standing areas that a lot of those places have. I was just going to say for the listeners, if you didn't know what the second track Candace was referring to, it's the, the longer extended circuit for Le Mans, which includes a lot of the French country roads around the actual proper part of smaller circuit which runs other races which is why you can have so many people because you can just go stand on a hillside and watch a race and is that counted in the like official capacity or are they just counting seats i would imagine it's probably not because isn't the Le Mans track like five or six miles long yeah but the proper i want to call it stadiumish part of it is a much smaller track because they do shut down some of the roads just directly around that as part of the track Okay, so it probably doesn't include those numbers. But the area that there is, yeah, you can fit a lot of people. Like the first football stadium is easily 40 or 50 down the list. And it's North Korea's uh, 1st of May stadium, which I don't believe has ever been filled. And I'm sure that's a soccer stadium, not a gridiron American football stadium. Right. And then uh, the, the largest football stadium or American football stadium, the Michigan stadium in Ann Arbor, which is two (laughs) below. Really? That one's the biggest. I thought for sure it was, it was one of the ones in Texas. Hmm. The next biggest American football stadium is Beaver stadium in, uh, Penn state or in state college, Pennsylvania, I guess. And then you've got Ohio stadium in Columbus, Kyle field in Texas, and then Knoxville. And then, uh, Baton Rouge, and then Tuscaloosa. Yeah, it's all the college stadiums because it's outdoor and it's easier to put a lot more grandstands in than it is for the actual more arena-style ones like AT&T Stadium here where the Cowboys play, which it probably seems bigger when you see it on TV because it has those gigantic screens in the middle and stuff, but the actual capacity is not that huge. Yeah, it's mostly uh, college football teams rather than NFL teams. And the the pro stadiums also have a lot of like luxury boxes and uh-huh. press press facilities that the uh college stadiums don't necessarily have, which means there's just more room for, you know, average seating. But anyway, um <laughs> <laughs> on a divergent topic, yeah, hey, with resources, next time we have oil, let me build racetracks. Thanks. Yeah, and yeah. that's that's been an idea I've had for a long and, and the only resource that I think Civ 
does anything like that with is with uranium and using uranium to power nuclear power plants. So well, and coal and oil. Yeah, oh yeah, actually you're right. Civ 6 did do that with all the energy producing resources. So yeah, but like I so if they can do it with some of them, they can do it with any or all of them. Yeah, I would like to see more of the resources whether it's luxury or bonus or strategic have alternate uses. You know, why is copper not, you know, like in the early game, why is copper not also luxury? Because people like to decorate things. Yeah, and also just like you're uh, getting at, also having more of a blending, right, between mm-hmm. some of the strategics and some of the, the luxuries. Because like I said, like horses uh, could also easily be considered a luxury resource that, you know, the wealthy elites buy and ride horses and, you know, have equestrian sports and stuff like that, that the, uh, you know, plebs don't really have access to. I, uh... Yeah, like, iron is great for making, like, cast iron cooking utensils. Maybe you get a little extra food out of it uh, if you have a city that has iron in its borders. Yeah, that is a pretty commonly spread resource, though. I mean, pretty much everybody does have cooking resources, so that one's a little bit harder to justify, and I can't really think of any real good examples, but, I mean, yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, Another interesting idea that uh, the poster in this topic had is to have lithium as a late game strategic resource for uh, powering batteries. And yeah, that could be an interesting oh. thing where where you maybe use lithium as like an alternative to your other energy generating resources like uranium and, and coal and stuff like that and oil, where you put lithium on like your wind farms and your solar farms and maybe your hydroelectric plants and it increases their uh, their output. That makes sense. Like it's an upgrade to, like if you've already built a solar in that city, but if you put in the what it would be a lithium ion battery upgrade, then you generate more because it's not, you're well, you get more energy overall, not because you're generating it because you're banking the extra energy. Right. Cause the way it works in real life is, you know, you have a solar panel, obviously that solar panel doesn't work at night. Right. Uh, right. but it almost always generates an excess of, well, depending on the, the panel and the use and stuff like that. But a lot of them generate an excess during the day because during the day on a clear day where, you know, you would mostly want to put solar panels, the earth gets a lot of sunlight. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you store that in a battery. And if the battery capacity is large enough, that can potentially run the same amount of capacity overnight when the sun is, is not shining. And it's the same with wind farms. You store it in a, in some kind of battery. And, you know, when the wind's not blowing, you discharge from the battery and then you maybe have a coal or oil fired plant, you know, somewhere that picks up any slack. If, uh, if there's still not enough capacity, but if you don't have the battery at all, then you're basically just running your solar panels during the day, and then all night long, you have to have, you know, uh, a fossil fuel as a backup. Well, there's some more things for the whole climate change thing there in the late game, too. Yeah, and Civ Six in particular, you know, one of the issues that I had with its climate change uh, mechanics was it is a little too easy to tech ahead to get the renewable resources, like hydroelectric power is available pretty early uh, in the, the modern eras of the game, and there are so many rivers in on Civ Six's map that it's really easy to have a, a a nation, an empire that's completely powered by hydroelectric power before you've even yeah. unlocked the ability to build coal powered plants. And then if you're yeah, really it's ahead, it's weird in- that you can do it before coal because coal came first, but. Hydroelectric is relatively simple. 
in terms i mean it's a lot of engineering to build a concrete dam but then the actual power generation part is relatively simple right but i mean we've been we've been building water-powered mills for thousands of years oh i mean that goes back to ancient rome and and greece i think even so i think it goes back back to china before that but yeah yeah and maybe also even egypt might have had some um some water-powered grain mills and stuff like that yeah i don't know about egypt because i think egypt has that flooding problem like I think they they didn't really build much stuff. You might be right, but there's also like the smaller tributaries and stuff like that that don't flood as much, which could have been candidates for something. I don't know. Maybe they did. I mean, they had, as my understanding is the ancient Egyptians had indoor plumbing, so they must have had also the capability of pumping stuff as well. So even if it was powered by literal literal people power, or if you just had a water thing that would do the pumping for you, but. We didn't use it. We didn't use that technology of that for electricity until we figured out what electricity was. So it, interesting um, piece of trivia that I learned recently is there was apparently a, a classical Roman um, inventor who actually created a prototype steam engine, like oh, yeah, back, a hero of Alexandria. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was it was a novelty, right? It was like a, a decorative, like "Ooh, look what I can do" kind of thing because nobody else in the like scientific or engineering community ever thought there would ever be any practical applications for a steam powered motor. They were like, well, "Well, what is this thing?" It's uh, it's more that the. The infrastructure required to make use of a steam engine did not yet exist. Yeah, there's that too. Um, like, I, I, there's a lot of um, alternate history stories that I have read about what happened if the Romans industrialized. And um, a lot of them fail to recognize that just inventing the steam engine does not build all of the infrastructure that society needed before it could even get to the point where a steam engine could be used. Like yeah. there, there are certain labor requirements and uh, technological advancements that uh, pre predate that predate the invention of the or predate the beginning of the industrial revolution that aren't dependent on just the steam engine. Right, and because so much um, labor was needed for agriculture in particular, just to feed everyone, it was really hard to take that labor away and you know allocate them to industrial purposes. Oh no, labor was not a problem in the ancient world. Uh, they had a lot of slaves, and they kept con- every t- every time they conquered people, they just made them into slaves. So part of the reason why nobody worked into developing the steam engine or anything needed for it was because slave labor was cheaper. Yeah, that's well, true I, too. Why do I want to expend, uh, spend these expensive materials on the steam engine that only replaces a handful of workers when, for that amount of money, I could have a nation of workers? Yeah, practically. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, lithium as a strategic resource, I could totally mm-hmm, get behind mm-hmm. that as another late game uh, resource, and that would be something that wouldn't even have a military application. Well, you could give I don't it. Know. A, you could give it a, a, a while we uh, replace some of our units' cost with lithium instead of using oil, because uh, if we can make electric war vehicles. Is to say we couldn't do that. Is lithium? Yeah, <laughs> we have our, our electric plug-in hybrid tanks. <laughs> um, Under it, the assumption that you could actually use lithium on an industrial scale, there probably is a way to do it. We just haven't figured it out yet. And I mean, you know, if you have a civilization game that's going up to the year, you know, that goes another fifty or to hundred years into the future, I mean, like, yeah, sure, you can have maybe a, a you know one of those advanced future tank units that is you know electrically powered. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, 
Yeah, I, I, is, is lithium also used for uh, computer chip parts? I was going to, not lithium, but I was going to mention gold and silver end up in a lot of microchips. And, and what's the other? There's another one I can't think of that's also. Maybe Tungsten? Yeah, there's other, particularly with gold and silver, those are valuable previously for decorative purposes and luxury, yeah. but it could become a strategic resource in the late game if you're using a lot of computerized things. Yeah, like for example, like a military drone, right? Like Civ Six mm-hmm. has, like the, the scout line eventually upgrades to a, a an unmanned drone, and like that could be, totally be something that requires, you know, gold as a strategic resource for. And maybe also lithium, because it's going to have batteries too. Yeah. Basically, uh, any of the um, noble metals can be used in those contexts, like platinum, osmium, wolfram, uh, gold, and silver. And I think there's a couple others. Oh, did I call it wolfram? Whoops. Wolfram is tungsten. That's the old word for it. There's a, a post, a, a couple, a few um, posts down from um, Linklight that says, the concern that I have is that I already find it hard to obtain strategic resources. So, you know, kind of getting at the idea that having more is just going to make it harder to find them. But inversely, depending on how it's designed, if you have more strategic resources, it means you potentially have more alternative options. So if you have a viable alternative to, for example, iron, right? Like if bronze is a functional strategic resource into the medieval era where you can still make bronze swords and, and, you know, spears and pikes and stuff, but maybe they're not quite as good. Uh, then you, you're not under as much pressure to find iron or just be screwed for the medieval era. Alternately, it could give you a reason to not be a turtle. Not that everybody is a turtle player, but I know a lot of people who don't like strategic units because they don't like to have to fight wars. Yeah, that too. If, if the later game strategic units are all in a place where you don't have any, getting off your your proverbial laurels and going and fighting somebody to get that is a good reason for the player to go to war if they don't feel like they need to or want to. Yeah, unfortunately, though, there's also kind of like the the circular thing where if you don't have the resources, you can't build the units to be competitive against the civs that do have the resources. So you also kind of are in a you know position where maybe you just can't go to war. So well, the trick for that is you always make the resources that make units. Like, other than iron, copper, and horses, which should be ab- abundant enough that everybody should be able to get them fairly easily. At least some, and, at least a small quantity. Yeah. You would need to make it so that the later ones, like saltpeter and uh, aluminum and what are uranium and, and oil. whatever else oil and all those things you need they need to be made visible on the map early enough that a civ at parity should would be able to prosecute a war against another nation before that lack of um becomes a deal breaker <laughs> yeah before they before they become too powerful yeah, you, you have to know resource. you have to know that you're not going to have access to that important resource early enough ahead to go and get it before it, you know, you're well into its window of opportunity where everybody else who has it is stopping you from getting it. And I think for the most part that happens now. Um, I think coal In Civ six. Yeah, I think I believe that the resources do uh, appear early enough for that to be functional. But part of the problem with that is that where you are on the tech tree is not always the same. Like there are branches on the tech tree that can sometimes take a lot of work to traverse in the other direction. So 
if you're taking the top path, it may be hard to get to the bottom path, and only one of them reveals the resource. Causes you to it requires you to go down certain specific tech paths. Yeah, another comment that I'm seeing on this thread is people are also bringing up the fact that a lot of strategic resources become useless after their you know respective eras, and you know that's also why I really like the idea of having those later game domestic purposes for them, so that you transition from using strategic resources for military purposes to being more of a, a domestic or you know economic resource. So they still have some function and some utility later in the game, and there's still value in having more of the resource and, you know, not just selling it all away to, you know, whatever tech or whatever sieve is uh, an era or two behind you and still uses them. Maybe just flat bonuses to yields. Yeah, I mean, that could be it, too. Or, again, like having some kind of resource allocation system where you decide where they go and which resources go where, and, you know, maybe they buff certain buildings or or certain infrastructure. You know, there's a lot of different ways it could be done. I would argue against a system like that simply because it's it's extra um, complication that doesn't really help that much. I would certainly see something like that working better with Civ Five system, where you have, like, a... Uh, you have a set quantity of resources that you can spend as opposed to Civ 6 where you're accumulating that that resource. For Civ 6, it should be more automatic. You just build a building that consumes the resource and that's it. Because yeah. uh, otherwise, it's a lot more micromanagement. But in a, in a case like in Civ 5 where you have five iron, right, and that's it, or, or we'll go with an easier example. You have five oil, right? Like you say, okay, one of those oils is going to go to my auto racetracks and one of those oils is going to go towards public transit in my largest cities, and then now I've got three oil left over to build some, you know, tanks and airplanes and stuff like that. And that's a lot easier to handle than, oh, I'm getting five oil per turn, and every turn I have to decide where that oil's going. Yeah, definitely don't want that. We don't need another uh, another uh, uh, trade route interface problem. No. Um, and another, but although speaking of trade... Uh, like, the, you know, we could also have mechanics where the resources are actually sent along those trade routes, too, which could be interesting. I know um, I think Beyond we, Earth we did are, that. Uh, uh, even in Civ Six, I think you do get bonuses if the destination or source cities have resources that the others don't. Yeah, that's true. The resource itself does not travel, though. But I, I could it could be interesting if you have a, you know, a trade route that is carrying oil. Uh, you know, whether it's automatically allocated or you have some manual process where you have to put it on the trade route, and then a enemy party pillages it and gets that oil. That would be annoying. Oh, yeah. I think it's better on the abstracted layer because the the trade routes don't move fast enough for it to make sense unless it was going to be like, oh, you sent a trade route that takes 30 turns to complete, and uh, on the thirtieth turn, the the other person gets all fifty of the oil that you've sent them by trade, and uh, whoops, somebody pillaged it, so you don't get any of that ire of that oil. Yeah, you definitely have to have a different trade route system that would not require as much micromanagement and babysitting as what is required in in Civ Five and especially in Civ Six. I think the the trade route system is fine. It's just not. It's just not useful enough for me to bother you like if it gave better yields it would be worth the trouble to go through all that rigmarole but as it is now it's kind of like you get two plus two uh hammers and plus one food on one side and nothing on the other side 
Like, why bother? Another example that I'm seeing uh, from uh, Casper GM is using niter as a strategic resource that is used for creating chemicals and fertilizers. So it would be a strategic mm-hmm. resource that boosts uh, food yields. I believe it already does. I think it's a passive thing where you just research the tech and it, it kind of just gives you a bonus to farms and, and pastures and stuff. I don't think you actually have to... like It doesn't consume the resource to get more food or whatever. Well, we're not on Nauru. Uh, phosphates are not limited. For anyone who doesn't know, Nauru is a Pacific island that ruined their environment by mining their phosphate. Oh. Also, also, foreign corporations helped with that. Oh, color me shocked. But yeah, other well, I, other the, I... both both the natives and the corporations are culpable in that story. It's very sad, but yeah, other ideas for strategic resources that are used for non-military applications is yeah, metals like iron and stuff like that uh, could go towards the steel for building skyscrapers. Could go towards building automobiles. Uh, you know, in an abstract sense, of course. I don't want to obviously have something where you have to manufacture individual cars for people to drive. Um, oils being oil being used to create plastics, which you know you could. Uh, uh, turn into you know luxury products in the form of things like toys and other consumer goods. I feel like that's kind of getting lost in the weeds. Maybe I just I, I would really like to have more things to think about with how I'm using my resources as opposed to just oh do I build a tank or an airplane? You know especially on those games where I am turtling and I don't have a need for the military. Like pretty much the only thing you have you do with those resources, especially in Civ Six, where you're constantly accumulating them, is just every few turns. Oh, will anyone buy these things? Because I'm not doing anything with them. It just would be really nice to have something else to do with them. Oh, I just let them roll over and just lose them because it's not. It doesn't matter to me, but well, I also that, don't play at a high level, so... Well, that ends up being what usually happens with, with my excess, because it's, it is just too much of a pain in the butt to be going every few turns to every um, other leader and trying to sell them the stuff, but also, you do that enough times, and then every other leader has stockpiles of the resource and just won't buy any more anyway. Yeah. Uh, especially in Civ Six, where the AIs have that frustrating issue where they kind of just stop building military units at certain points of the game. All right. Have we uh, reached the end of the topic? I think we have. All right. And this is now the end segment of the show. I would like to mention one thing, if I may. Um, One of the members of my family has recently announced that they are making a video game. And they are starting a Kickstarter later this year. And we will put a link in it. But it is somebody who you probably have heard of if you've ever played Hollow Knight. Cool. They have a nice trailer out, so... <clears throat> Ray for more games by people who actually care about games. Anyway, this has been episode 399 of Polycast. I'm Makalua. With me today, Candice Albinus. Oh, whoops. <laughs> and Mega Bears fan. One of these days, I will get the wordle on the first guess, if I just keep using the same word. <laughs> uh, I don't yeah. think that'll work. Yeah, that's gonna be a while. Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 sound clips. Copyright Take-Two Interactive.
copyright the polycast at the polycast.net